you were here last week, you heard that we are in the midst of three consecutive stories of Jesus at a feast. Today is the middle story about food, which obviously sets up our sharing the bread of Christ Sunday next week. And it turns out that today's story is a continuation of last week's. Last week's, Jesus invited to a rich person's wedding feast, gets at table, and then condemns those who took the best seats in the house, saying you should take the lower seat and then be invited to the higher seat, rather than being embarrassed by being asked to go back to the lower seat. And then he flips the whole table upside down by saying, and the next time you give a wedding feast, I say, invite those from the streets, the blind, the impoverished, the outcast, the poor. Then you will have the presence of the kingdom of God. This week, we are still at that same wedding banquet table. And after Jesus said what he just said, there had to be an awkward pause. And then this morning's text, beginning in the 15th verse of the Gospel of Luke, the 14th chapter. Then one of the other dinner guests on hearing this said to him, Blessed is anyone, sort of pious kind of way, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, Hear this story. There was someone who gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for dinner, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come now, for everything has been prepared. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I must go out and see it, accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out, so please accept my regrets. And another said, I have just been married, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his servant, Okay, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. This is the word of the Lord. Ouch. Why did he have to say that last verse? I tell you, none of those who were first invited will taste my dinner. When we looked at this passage in our staff meeting this past week, we seem to be hyper-focused on that last verse, the judgment, condemnation verse, about those who sent their regrets, and now since they regretted, they will no longer be invited again, apparently. Does this mean that we, too, have turned our backs on Jesus' invitation in the past, will no longer be invited to the heavenly banquet? And as we were talking, our conversation then moved to how we avoid going to parties and weddings sometimes and the excuses we make up 
Sometimes we said we don't want to go to a party because we're not sure who will be there and we don't want to be there if there's somebody there we don't want to be with. Or we don't go to a party because we think, you know, they're too highfalutin for me anyway. Why do I really want to be there? We just don't measure up. What struck me later was as we had these conversations, and they went on about 15 minutes, how easy it is for us when hearing this text to literalize the words of Jesus and to turn them something into something, I think at least, less than they were intended. It's like looking at a perfectly prepared piece, 16 ounces of perfectly prepared prime ribeye and saying, wow, that's a nice piece of meat. No, it's more than that. I think the issue of food in the Bible is a classic example of us not understanding how profound this prime beef is. It's always symbolic, and it's always a metaphor for something much greater than itself. So every time we get stuck in that literal concrete place, we're missing the feast. And we all know there are a lot of uh, rituals in our culture around food and eating, eating. And anthropologists go back, and as they look at cultures in the past, they discover that eating provides the oldest opportunity for humans to lift up a symbolic understanding of God's presence and blessing. And that's especially true in the Bible. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but if you go through the list of the Bible where food is important symbolically, it starts with creation. When even before God creates the sun and the moon, read it. He creates the, 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 he separates darkness from light, but that's not the sun and the moon. Before God creates the sun and the moon, God creates the vegetation so that we will have something to eat. Then the sun and moon are created, and then the rest days of the days of creation are, are, are God uses to, to create our food that we may be nourished. Adam and Eve in the garden, what does he do? He tills the garden so that they may be nourished having access to everything in creation to eat, except, of course, that one prohibited tree, which is the tree of full knowledge. Only God gets to eat of that tree. On and on, Cain and Abel in their offering lifted up. The 23rd Psalm, thou preparest a table before me. Isaiah's unbelievable vision about when all things are finally at peace, when the bear and the cow will graze together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. That is, no longer will the lion eat meat and the the calves of cows, but will eat straw instead. New Testament, too, is full of this metaphorical language of food and feasting all through it, but especially in Luke. As if Luke has this, this whole new understanding of how powerful this symbol is. And of course he would because he was a Gentile. And Gentiles in that day were left out of the Jewish cultural laws because they did not eat kosher. It's Luke who says Jesus was born in a manger, which in French means an eating place. It's Luke who has Mary lift up in her Magnificat, and he will do great things to the poor, and the hungry will be fed. 
It's Luke, of course, who has John the Baptist out in the wilderness eating honey and wild locust, and Jesus never, ever missing a party within a hundred-mile radius. At every wedding, at every banquet, Jesus attended. It was such a dilemma, in fact, that John the Baptist was accused of being full of demons because his, his eating was so austere, and Jesus was accused in Luke of being a glutton and a drunkard because of his partying routine. Of course, he did so moderately, but they always saw him at every party. Why? Because Luke understands that feasts are symbolic of the kingdom of God. Powerful metaphor for what it is like to be in God's presence. It's Luke who's always talking about wedding banquets and these feasts where people from east and west and north and south will come. And they will be gathered with tax collectors and lepers and sinners and all will be invited just as this passage in today's text tells us. Which is why, of course, as Jesus, when facing his impending death the night before he was to be crucified, sat with his disciples and took a loaf of bread and a jar of wine and turned them into the sacramental symbol of Christ's presence with us always. Which is why Luke in wanting to tell us what it was like to experience the risen Christ, had two disciples walking back on their way to Emmaus when Christ joins them and they invite him back to dinner and Christ sits down at their table, of course, Luke, and he reaches out and takes a loaf of bread and he breaks it and their eyes are opened and he disappears from their sight. Another meal. Which is why Luke has the disciples run back to Jerusalem as fast as they can, seven miles, to tell the rest of the disciples, we've discovered the risen Christ and he was at the table And no sooner do they get the words out than Jesus mysteriously comes in and stands in their midst and he shows them his hands and his feet and his woundedness. And the first words out of his mouth in Luke are these. You have anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, which he sat in Munchstone as he began to tell him what it was like to be resurrected into the kingdom of God. You see, for Luke, understanding the presence of God was all about seeing food as the symbol and metaphor of God's reign, God's kingdom with us. Now, we all have cultural rules around our eating, and in some uh, cultures, they are better than others. I read a passage in a book, actually Anita read it to me, about about the pilgrims in the old days uh, up in New England. And it was from one particular letter from a woman who uh, was in her family uh, talking about Elder Brewster who had come to England with this new instrument that had metal prongs on the end called a fork. The letter reads, It is said, although I have not myself seen it, that a table instrument called a fork is in the possession of Master Brewster having brought it from England. It is of iron made of two sharp points made to be uh, to hold the food. I cannot understand why one would need such a tool while they have their own cleanly fingers and napkins of linen on which to wipe them. Perhaps Father was right when he said that we who come into the world for the single reason of worshiping God as we please are too much bound up in the vanities of life. 
And Father says he knows no more vain thing than an iron tool with which to hold one's food. Cultural food laws change, thank goodness, although you couldn't have proven that by my younger daughters growing up. Time after time, we would scold them about their dinner manners, trying to teach them better. They were reading a book uh, about the Goops, by the way, and the Goops had no manners of all. And so we came up, actually, Nancy came up with the bright idea of, I've got it. To teach them their manners, let's let them have one night without them. And so every night, I know I'm in trouble with parents now, one night a week, every week, they would have goop night when they could disregard almost every manner at table. Those nights, I worked very hard to try to get a meeting that I would miss dinner. Jesus is telling us in these passages, of course, that food and eating is symbolic of the presence of God with us. It is like being at a feast. And what we in the church call God's presence is the bread of Christ. Spread out for us with every conceivable delight for our consumption A party waiting only for us to show up. Jesus tells it in this parable, in this passage this morning, everyone in in the land is invited. First, as I said, the Jews, God's chosen people, who, according to the text, had good reason. And all three objections, all three are listed in Deuteronomy 20 as being fair objections for not being called up to military service. All three are fair, except not when it's about the presence of God. Jesus, according to his invitation, was turned down by law and duty and self-righteousness. So they set the tables again, food ready. God invites those in the streets. That's us. We're the Gentiles. We're not the first and the poor, and the dispossessed, and the outcasts, and invites them in for this amazing feast. Everyone was invited. And God kept saying to the servants, Go out some more. Go out some more and find them all, for there's still room at my table. This is the focus of this text. That there's still room at my table. Not the last verse of condemnation. I tell you, those who are first called will not taste of my dinner. That condemnation is only there because our choice is to come or not. The real focus on this text is how much room God has at the table and how broad the invitation is to join Him. I'm not talking about the final feast in heaven. I'm not talking about the eschatological kingdom of God moment when Jesus comes again and we all are taken up in the rapture and sit down at the wedding feast. I'm talking about the amazing grace that is ours now to feast upon. The rich community stew that is ours to fill up on. The moments of sublime joy that comes with each bite of grateful life living 
the deep meaning of what this is all about that is ours to chew on if we are willing. Friends, I'm trying to say that that's, that feast is here. The kingdom of God is here, now, present. And all it takes for us is to show up and sit down and receive it. It's told in a poem by Mary Oliver that goes, Who made the world? Who made the swan, the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I don't know how to pay, but I, I don't know exactly what a prayer is, but I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day long. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? He's talking about the presence of God that is at this moment 